today we are beginning a new series. And so if you're new here with us, uh, through the fall we were preaching through the book of Philippians, which is a letter in the New Testament. And now we're jumping to the Old Testament, jumping back to the Old Testament. And we are looking at a narrative section of scripture, a story. And really we're going to focus on the story of Abraham. Now if uh, You've heard of the Bible, you've probably heard of Abraham. There are songs about Abraham, which I won't sing for you, uh, but there are, they're really great. In our preschool, they're probably singing them right now. And uh, Abraham is, really, uh, is often called the father of faith, and that's for good reason. Uh, everyone in the Bible looks back to Abraham uh, because of his faithfulness, because of the story of his life, which is really all about faith. Next to Jesus, Abraham is really the, the second most important person in the Bible, He's the most referenced, and everyone looks back to uh, his example of his life. So Abraham's story is really the story of God working through an everyday man. It's the story of God building a people for himself. From Abraham come the Israelites, the Jewish people, and then by extension, us, those who are Christians. And so really this is Abraham's story, it's God's story, and it's also our story. A story of life and faith and what happens when God calls us out of the darkness and into the light. Now for our time this morning, we're going to divide it into three sections. Uh, The first, we're going to set the stage. Anytime we come to a new book in the Bible, we want to understand the context, where we are. And then we're going to look into our our passage, which is Genesis uh, 12, verses 1 to 20. We're going to do that in two sections. So we have setting the stage, then we're going to look at Abraham's faith, and then Abraham's failure. There's quite a lot to go through, so it's going to be a little longer than normal, but thankfully the first part doesn't count towards my sermon time, so it'll be, it'll be fine. It'll all work out. Now, uh, in terms of setting the stage, uh, Genesis, obviously, where are we? We're at the beginning, right? We're at the very beginning of history, of, of time. It's uh, right after the creation of the world. I want to mention that as we come to Genesis, uh, it's important we understand we are coming to a historical text. This is not mythology we are reading, this is history. Uh, there are many people who would say, you know, these are, this is mythology, this is a creation story that people made up. Uh, that's not the case. The Bible never talks about itself, and Genesis in particular, as mythology. It's always history. It's a description of things that actually happened. And you can tell the difference between uh, history and mythology. In a myth, um, there aren't usually a lot of details. They're kind of, it's a big pass over what happened. Uh, But in history, you find a lot of details. And as we read through Genesis, you'll be struck by the number of details that are present. That's because Moses is actually writing about what what actually happened. So that's how we're going to approach this text. In terms of timeline, uh, we have the creation of the world, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, the worldwide flood, then the Tower of Babel, and then Abraham. So just before our, our text that we're going to read today, there was the Tower of Babel, which is where everyone in their pride and, and sin got together. Humanity was kind of clustered, and they said, we are going to build the greatest tower. People are going to know who we are and see what we can do. And they built uh, probably a stepped pyramid called a ziggurat, and God saw that this was not a good thing. He saw that nothing good would come of a united and godless humanity, because at this time, Uh, The culture of the world was godless. Uh, Apart from a few exceptions, uh, like Melchizedek or Job, uh, by and large, people were not following God. They didn't know him. Uh, God hadn't spoken to them for generations. Noah was the last time God spoke. And so by the time you get to Abram, and especially the the scattering of the people from the Tower of Babel, uh, they are a godless pagan people. 
Now that's, that's who Abraham is. That's who his family was. Now I have, uh, this is going to be really exciting uh, because I have a laser pointer this morning. So I'll try not to blind anyone because we have some maps, a little bit of uh, exciting things. This is the map of the region of uh, where this whole story is going to take place. Uh, you can see in the Middle East. And we're going to focus our attention on the city of Ur. We're going to talk a bit about that. And this is really the, the journey that Abraham took uh, to the promised land. Now, uh, Abraham's name back then was Abram. So uh, Abram is what I'm going to try to stick with, unless I forget, and then it'll be Abraham. But it's the same guy. Uh, we're going to read in a few weeks where God changes his name. Now, we know quite a bit about this city of Ur, and that is thanks to this man. This is Sir Leonard Woolley. He is a fantastically serious man, and uh, you'll not be surprised to know that he is British, and he is also a fantastic, was a fantastic archaeologist. Uh, he is the man who uh, excavated the city of Ur, and so we know quite a bit about Abraham's hometown. Uh, what he found, he went there with his wife. I think we have a picture of him and his wife, Catherine. Uh, that's a great place uh, for your early years of marriage to be excavating in uh, Mesopotamia. So uh, what they uh, discovered was a whole city and very well preserved. And you have to imagine at the time, this was in the 1920s, they took 10 years to excavate uh, this city. And it really took the world by storm, especially Europe. If you remember um, when they discovered King Tut's tomb, that was uh, amazing. It was Egypt mania. Same thing here. There were actually uh, British people who would take holidays to come visit the excavation site. They were so enthralled with what Sir Leonard was finding. Uh, Agatha Christie at the time came to visit him, and she based one of her uh, mystery stories on an archaeological dig. So this was big news. This was in all the papers. And what he found, you'll see the site here. There was uh, quite a lot of people that they employed. They dug up the whole city. And uh, some of the interesting things they found were, of course, many artifacts. You'll see uh, kind of pots. And uh, many, many pots, the guy's looking it out. And then a lot of skeletons. Uh, there were a number of places where they found tombs. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, but at the center of the city was a ziggurat, the same type of tower that probably was the Tower of Babel. And this wasn't just the archaeological center of the city. It was also the cultural and spiritual center of the city. Uh, see, their culture were moon worshippers. And the top of the ziggurat was a temple to the moon god Nana, which is a weird name for a moon god, but that was the name. Nana, they would come and they would worship. They would offer sacrifices, all sorts of sacrifices, including human sacrifices. So this was the town in which Abram lived. This lunar religion dominated their lives from birth until death. In fact, the tombs that I mentioned, uh, Sir Leonard found a whole bunch of them. There is a royal cemetery where the kings and queens of Ur were buried. One queen in particular, Queen Puabi. And around her tomb, uh, there was a chamber filled with artifacts. So these are some of the uh, artifacts that they found. There's them in the tomb. They found this bull-headed lyre. That's actually a musical instrument. And this was her headdress, all made of gold. Now, what's interesting is that Around her tomb, uh, she was not alone in her death. This is a, a drawing of who would have been put to death with her. This is exactly where they found all the skeletons. There were 73 people in a chamber, uh, a death pit, they called it, which was all around her tomb. So you have soldiers, you have servants, you have all the things that they would need. And what's interesting is that everyone was standing uh, in a particular spot, and in their hands, uh, they found clay pots, and they, uh, they guessed that they were filled with poison. And so everyone would kind of take their place. When they're ready, they would all drink and they would all die together. 
But there was one skeleton that caught Sir Leonard's uh, eye, and that was the skeleton of a young girl. Um, they could tell by you know, the skeleton how old she was, that she was female. And in her hand, instead of a clay pot, there was this object, which is actually a, uh, a hair ribbon. And uh, it's made of metal. They found it in other uh, skeletons in, in the hair. But in her case, it was in her hand. And Sir Leonard, he liked to kind of imagine what was going on in the lives of these people. And so what he, uh, what he thinks probably happened is that this girl was late to the ceremony, that she'd been across the village somewhere, and that she had raced to get there in time, and she was in time to get to her place and to drink the poison, but she forgot to put her hair ribbon in her hair. And so she died there along with everyone, but it's still in her hand. It's good for us to get a clear picture of, of Abraham and his culture. It was very much a culture of death. It was a culture without hope. This was 10 generations since God had last spoke. They didn't know the living God. They were worshiping false gods, pagans. They were hoping that in their death, they might appease the moon God and somehow help their royalty to go into the afterlife. It was into this spiritual darkness that God spoke. And God spoke words that people hadn't heard. For a long time, he spoke words of promise and blessing, and protection, and life. And so at this moment, when God has a call upon Abram's life, it's, it's a turning point, not just for his family, but for all of humanity. Because the, the blessings that God promises are to him and for the generations to come. So with that in mind, we're going to read the first section, the call of Abram, and uh, imagine with me uh, where he was and what God is saying to him. This is God's word. Uh, this is chapter 12. Uh, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. That's God's word, the first part for us this morning. I want to pause for a moment of prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story, this account of Abram, Lord, whom you visited, whom you, you spoke to. God, I pray now as we consider these words, your word, Lord, I pray, God, that it would inform our hearts. Lord, I pray, God, that it would inform our minds. And God, that you would help me to, uh, to be helpful and to explain well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get into the meaning, we're really going to look at uh, what it means to have faith. We see here that this is a story of great faith. Uh, but there's a technical detail that we need to make clear. And uh, this is the, the question that some people ask. Where exactly was Abram when God spoke to him? Uh, it, a minute ago, I said he was in Ur, which is, which is where he grew up. That's very true. And in fact, that's what the Bible says. Uh, this is what God says in Genesis 15. 
Uh, And he said, that's God, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But if if you noticed in our text, it looks like he comes from somewhere else. In our text, uh, verse 4 says, So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is important because there are many critics of the Bible that will say, look, you can't believe this book. It's, it's an ancient book. It's filled with errors, filled with inconsistencies. And this is one of the spots where they say, look, it's, it doesn't even have the factual details correct. So we need to, we need to answer this question. Thankfully, uh, the Bible itself uh, makes clear what happened. And so uh, we find this in the book of Acts. There are many um, references from the New Testament talking about the life of Abram. This is one of them. Stephen speaks in the book of Acts, and he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, that's Ur, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So, what happened is this. We have a map again. So basically, God spoke to Abram in Ur. He responded in faith and started his journey with his whole family. But when they got to Haran, his father became ill. And so they stopped there. His father couldn't go any further. And they waited till he he passed away. And then he continued on. So he was, God did speak to him in Ur, but then he left from Haran. And actually, in our text, you can see evidence of this. In verse 1, if you have a Bible in front of you, there's probably a, a little footnote on the word said. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, uh, and if you look at the footnote, it'll say, sometimes that's translated, had said. So the Lord God had said to Abram back in Ur to do all these things, and then from Haran, Abraham went and was faithful. So it's important that we see that the Bible is, uh, is consistent and coherent, and this is another example of it. Now, in Abram himself, we see a great example of faith. I mean, look at what he was called to do, to leave his homeland and um, what we know about faith from the Bible is, is this. I want to put it up there because we're going to talk a lot about it. Here is the biblical definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. The conviction in your heart, you believe in something that you can't yet see. Abram couldn't see God. He heard his voice. He didn't know where he was going. And yet he, he was faithful. He responded in faith. And the nature of that faith, there's a lot of different elements to it. And this faith that he had is the same for us today. For those who who are Christians and say we have faith in Jesus, the nature of the faith is the same. So we're going to look at five elements as we work through this passage, three in this section, two in the next, that help us to understand the nature of true faith. Uh, Number one, faith, true faith is obedient. Just stop and imagine for a second how difficult this would have been. Of, Of course, there's logistical difficulties. If you've ever packed up a young family into a van, you know that's hard enough to get all the juice boxes and all the things. For Abram, it wasn't just for a short journey. It was his entire livelihood. All of his cattle, all of his servants, everyone had to get packed into some sort of caravan and they had to head out. But more than that was the fact that people didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. See, remember... There was no context for this. They didn't know the God that had spoke to Abram. So imagine those conversations with his family, with his friends. Where where are we going? What are we going where? Oh, you don't know where we're going, but we're going. 
Everyone is going, why? Who told you this? Who is it? Which God? That wasn't Nana. Nana didn't make us leave. Nana makes us do other things. That's, there would have been confusion. It's so much harder to be faithful and obedient when you're the only one. And yet this is what we see in Abram. See, when Moses got the call, look at what God does. God identifies himself right away. This is when God is speaking to Moses, telling him to go to Egypt to free his people at the burning bush. Uh, in verse 6 of Exodus 3, it says, And he said, this is God speaking, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. See, right away, Moses knew who was speaking to him. He knew the authority and the power of the God of Abraham. For Abraham, he did not know this God. And yet, he obeyed. He he obeyed the pure voice of the Lord, the word of God. This is an amazing, this is breathtaking faith. Look at what it says simply in our text. Just a reminder, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. He didn't question, he didn't doubt, maybe he he did, but he, he went, he mobilized. He believed the word of God. And the reminder for us is that in our faith, true faith is always coupled with obedience. In fact, it's in the obedience that we demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. You see this throughout the Bible. You see this in the lives of those who are faithful, not necessarily perfect obedience. We're going to see that for Abram a bit later on, but that there is a heart that obeys the word of God. It reminds me of uh, a sketch. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld had a show, if you remember, I don't know, a decade ago. And uh, there's a part where he goes to a a rental car counter. He's rented a car. And so he goes up to the counter and he says, hello, I have have a reservation for a car. And she says, yes, sir, we have your reservation, but I'm sorry, we don't have a car. And he says, but you have my reservation? She says, yes. He said, well, if you have my reservation, then you must have a car. A car always goes to the reservation. That's what a reservation is for. And she says, sir, I I know what a reservation is for. And he says, I don't think you do. (laughs) Because if you did, then you would know that a reservation must have a car with it. A reservation without a car is just empty words. It doesn't mean anything. And it's the same with our faith. There are many people who who proclaim, say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But if there isn't uh, obedience that goes with it, then we have to question that faith. The obedience is our opportunity to demonstrate the things that we believe. And in obedience to the word of God, this is something that can happen uh, on a big scale or a small scale. Meaning there are sometimes when we are called as, as people or as a family uh, to go somewhere, to, to do something grand or, or, or larger, or massive change in our lives. But there are many more times where we simply read the word of God and it instructs us. It tells us how we are to live faithfully how we are to live in a way that honors God and is best for us. So just imagine for a moment that you're reading through the word of God. You're in Ephesians, and you're a a husband or a wife. You can't be both. And you you read this, Ephesians 5.33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Very clear teaching of scripture. But you know as a husband or wife that that's easier said than done. You know that there are many times when you struggle to really show love to your wife or struggle to respect your husband. And at certain times, we complicate the matter by by thinking of all the reasons why it is difficult or the relational dynamics that are going on, that why it's a hard time for us. And, And that may very well be true, but over all of that is the word of God, which says that you are to love your wife. You are to battle through. You are to be in prayer. Lord, I don't feel it in my heart, but God, I see in your word 
that this is best for me. This is best for our relationship if this very day I find a way to demonstrate love to my wife. Or God, I, I don't see any reason to respect him. The, the things that he's done. But God, I believe you. My faith, I believe that your word is true. That it's good for me. And so God, would you help me? Help me to find a way to be respectful. To show respect, to trust that as I do that, there will be blessing that flows into our life. We are to shape our lives around this word, God's word. And in that, it's a demonstration of our faith, that we really do believe that he is for us. So a question you might ask yourself coming out of this section is simply, is your life marked by obedience to God's word? As you think about the way you live, as you think about the way you make decisions, do you find yourself considering the word of God and then acting in light of it? So firstly, faith is obedient. Secondly, faith is hopeful. Uh, we see in the text, Abram left Ur and then Haran and traveled to the land of promise. And here's what happened when he got there. Uh, verses five to seven. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, uh, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now that would have been an exciting time. The end of a long journey, always exciting. Everyone piles out of the car or the caravan, they stretch their legs, look at this land. This is amazing land. It's fertile, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. And then God appears to Abram. Remember, he hadn't seen God up to this point. And God here manifested himself in light and glory. I mean, that just would have amazed him until God spoke. And God spoke and it was surprising. It would have been very, very hard for Abram to hear the words that God spoke because God didn't say, go now and take possession of the land. He said, this is the land I'm going to give to your offspring. Essentially, what he was saying is, this is a land of promise, but not for you. For you, you're not going to settle down here. You are going to roam through the land as if you are a tenant on your own land, but it's for your, for your offspring. This must have been so difficult for Abram to hear. Because he left a place where he was settled. He had a hut, or probably a few huts, right? He had built and crops and that kind of thing. And no doubt in his heart, as he was talking to Sarah, you know, don't worry, it's gonna be great. Once we get there, we'll build a hut. It'll be just like, it'll be better than before. We'll have a house, we'll be able to establish ourselves. And they get there, and God says, no. God says, no, I want you to travel through the land. They can't settle down. This is very, very difficult for us as human beings. Have you been in it time? when you've, you've wanted to settle down, you've wanted a place of your own, and the doors just haven't opened. For the Glezos family, we went through a time like that. Uh, we had been in ministry for a few years, uh, living here in Coquitlam, had a house here, working at Willingdon Church in Burnaby, and we felt the call to go to Westside Church in Vancouver and to help with uh, their North Shore campus plant, which meant moving to North Vancouver. And so that meant renting out our house here and finding rentals on the North Shore, which was difficult. Uh, it was tough to find a place. It was tough to find a place that would fit us. And what we found is that uh, the rental places, they, would, they wouldn't last more than a year. So we were there four years. We had three different rental places. That meant packing up each year, moving, never feeling settled. It was very, very difficult for us. We just wanted to, to call, you know, call a place home, and we couldn't do that. But for Abram, it was worse. <laughs> Because that was a few years for us, and we didn't know how long it would be. But for Abram, God's telling him, this is, you're not going to take possession of this land. You're going to roam. So how did Abram maintain his faith? 
Well, again, the word of God comments on this, on this season of life. And what we see is that Abram realized that this world was not his true home, that he was called to be a pilgrim. Look what it says in Hebrews. It says, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking for a heavenly city. He realized that, that this is not my ultimate hope. I am hopeful, not because of the things that God has given me right now, but because he promises me great things in the future. See, Abram's faith meant that he could have hope for the future regardless of his circumstances. I mean, there are a lot of things that God had promised him. Look at the blessings God said. God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram believed those things, but he also trusted that God would bring them in his timing which is very difficult to do. It's so hard for us to know that God promises us good things and yet in the moment we, we aren't yet experiencing them. Faith is the, the hopefulness for the future. And really what it means is that instead of hoping in the things that God is bringing us, we hope in God himself. That's what Abram was doing. Lord, I trust you. I trust you and so I am hopeful. I'm joyful. I can carry on in faith. So a question for, for us is this, do you hope in God or do you hope in the things that you expect from him? What happens when God makes you wait for some of the good things that he promises to bring in your life? What happens when he takes you through a time of suffering and you're not experiencing all the blessings that he promises? In, in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. We have freedom from sin, we have peace, we have comfort, all of those things, and yet we don't always experience them fully. What do we do in that gap time? Do we, do we get bitter? Do we get angry? Or do we trust in faith that God loves us and he is bringing us the blessings that he promised at the perfect time? True faith always hopes in promises for the future and that hope brings peace to the present. So true faith is hopeful. Thirdly, true faith is worshipful. We see this in Abram's response, uh, verses seven to nine. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negeb. So here we see Abram being a, a pilgrim. Right? He's moving on. He's moving around. But just because he's a pilgrim doesn't mean that he leaves the world untouched. We see evidences of his worship throughout the promised land. This is Abram symbolically claiming ownership of the land by traveling through it and worshiping God and building stone altars. That's, that's what they would do to express their faith and their worship. Lord, I worship you. I sacrifice this animal. And he leaves them. These are evidences. And it strikes me that these artifacts of faith these artifacts of worship, they, they are in stark contrast to the artifacts that Sir Leonard found back in Ur. See, those artifacts all testified to a culture of death. But now we have, we have altars testifying to the God of life. That in this land, God has promised to build a people and to bring life and hope. And really what it tells us is that 
What you worship makes a difference. It's evidenced in your life that, that what we live for, what we hope for, that people can tell that there are artifacts we leave behind and as people of faith, we are to leave behind artifacts of worship. So my question to you is, what if Sir Leonard, and maybe Catherine also, uh, came along and they were to excavate your life? If they had time and you said, go through my things, go through my, my place of work, my home, um, my files, my bank account, my internet, my email, my web history, what would they conclude about the things that are important in your life? What would they conclude that you are, you are worshiping? Are there artifacts of worship throughout your life? Are there people whose lives you've changed? Are there ministries you've given to? Are there evidences that the things that you believe, they, they manifest themselves by honoring God with all of your, your life? That's what we're called to. In Romans, we are to be a living sacrifice, one who honors God completely with all of our being. This is what we see in Abram, that he's wandering, he's not bitter, he's not angry, he's saying, Lord, I honor you, and Lord, this is the land you've given me. I look forward to the promise when one day all of my offspring will take possession of it. So, faith is obedient, faith is hopeful, faith is worshipful, but the journey of faith is not yet done. And so with that in mind, we're going to turn to really the, the first test of resistance for Abraham, for Abram, and I'm going to read you the next section, starting in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, she, uh, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So, very interesting passage. A lot of questions probably about our father of faith and how he dealt with things. Uh, this famine is, is really uh, the first point of resistance. Up to this point, it was difficult what he was called to do, but here now he is at a, he's at a loss, right? What, what is he going to do? You can imagine him realizing that there's nothing growing. There's no food here. And just think of his emotional climate, right? Lord, you brought us here. I mean, we're here, God, because of you. We left everything in Ur. We had lots of food. It was great there. But now you brought us here. We followed you. The land that you said was for us is actually not for us. It's for our offspring. And now there's not even enough food to live. Imagine the, the frustration. Imagine the, the tension that would grow in the family. What, what are we going to do? You, Abram, you told us to come here. God said there'd be blessing, and now there's nothing. You could imagine him saying, Lord, why does it have to be so difficult? I mean, it shouldn't be difficult if I'm following you, right? This is where you told me to go, and now we can't even stay here. 
Lord, why is it that there's so much challenge when I follow you? Have you thought these questions? Have you, have you wondered this aloud? Lord, I, I'm doing what you said to do. Why isn't it going better? This was our, our life in North Vancouver. We knew very clearly that God had called us to that place. Both Don and I felt the conviction of God, felt confirmation for the elders, but once we got there, it was so difficult. I mean, the rental houses were one thing, but the, the people around us were also difficult, not in ministry. We knew that would be hard, but there was unexpected challenges. We lived in a home that was a beautiful home. We thought it was going to be the best rental house ever, and they said in passing, there is a tenant in the basement, but she's never there. She's a professional woman. She's out doing things. Turns out, she was always there, and she hated children. She told us, I hate children. She made it her mission to get us evicted. She organized email campaigns with the neighbors when her kids would play in the lane. She would vandalize her car, which we couldn't prove. She cut down her Christmas lights. She was always negative, always abrasive, and we found ourselves saying, God, what? we didn't expect this. See, it's often in the unexpected resistance that we tend to grow. This is the fourth thing we see. See, faith always grows through testing. Now, testing, we we know from many other areas of our life is a good thing. Uh, We wouldn't be very smart if all of our tests at school were easy, right? There'd be no resistance. We wouldn't have to study. We just pass. We would learn nothing, right? In uh, muscle building, I'm told theoretically that as you build muscle, (laughs) a lot of it, that your muscles tear because of the resistance and you build more muscle. Things grow when there's resistance. But when it comes to our faith, God often brings unexpected resistance, See, we we knew we were coming into a ministry that would be difficult on the North Shore, but we didn't expect this. And what it meant was that we were all of a sudden, we were questioning, we were doubting. Lord, it wasn't supposed to be this hard. For Abram, it's sort of the same. He had been faithful up to this point. He had responded faithfully to what God had called him to do, but now, now, Lord, there's no food. And so his response is to fall back on his own wisdom. He says, no food, that's all right, God, I know what to do. Don't worry, I'm not even going to ask you. I know what is the right answer. It's to go down to Egypt. Because Egypt is where there's always food. There's the Nile there. Things always grow. And so Abram has the perfect plan. We're going to go down to Egypt, and he knows that his wife is very beautiful, and that someone's going to kill him and take her. So I know this doesn't seem like a perfect plan, but it's actually a pretty good plan. The reason it's more perfect than we think is that he didn't actually want anyone to marry his wife. What he wanted was to stall. See, if, if he was her brother, then they would have to come to him to negotiate for her hand in marriage. That's how it worked. And so his plan was, during the famine, I, he would stall the negotiations. He would take his time, would take months and months, negotiating back and forth, and then by the time the famine was over, they could go back, Sarah would be safe, he would be fine, it would be perfect. Except for one thing. Pharaoh doesn't negotiate with anyone. Pharaoh just takes what he wants. And as they entered, immediately they saw that this was a beautiful woman. And so he didn't ask, he didn't negotiate, he simply did what he wanted, which was to take her as his own. Can you imagine what that scene would have been like? When they're there and all of a sudden they realize that, man, there's a lot of attention from Pharaoh's princes. They're commenting on her. And and they don't ask, they just come. They invite her. Come to the palace. Don't worry, you will be well compensated. Imagine their eyes meet as she leaves. She has no choice. 
Abram doesn't have an army. He doesn't have any, any power. And they take her behind the walls of the palace. And she's there with, with fear and anxiety of what will happen. And he's got a sinking feeling in his stomach. I did this. This is my fault. And to make matters worse, he is showered with gifts. I mean, they don't seem like great gifts, but from what my reading, female donkeys are the best donkeys to ride. I don't know why. They're just, they're better. And camels, they were brand new to the area. This would be like giving a Tesla SUV. No one has these things. This is amazing, right? They're hybrid, so, so, I don't know what they are. They're very good to ride, apparently. It was, it was a symbol of prestige, except that for Abram, it would have been a symbol of his, of his guilt, of his condemnation. The problem is, is that it was an impossible situation. There was no way to get her out of the palace. There was no way to flee the country. There was no way to protect the woman he loves from the danger that he put her in. See, what we see here is a colossal failure on Abram's part. Now, it should be noted that it was very unlikely that any adultery actually took place. And that was only by the grace of God. Because generally speaking, there was a, a time of preparation for any new women who were added to the king's uh, harem. If you remember Esther, there was a long time of preparation before she came to actually see the king. And also because God intervened almost immediately. And what he did was bring a plague. The language there is probably some sort of skin irritation, boils or something. And so almost immediately as Sarai is in the palace, people are scratching and itching and they're wondering what's going on. And what scholars surmise is that uh, Sarah was left unafflicted. She was fine. So eventually, someone's like, hey, the new girl is fine. What's going on? And as they spoke to her, no doubt, sure, her conscience got the better of her, and she, she told what had happened. And so the result is that Abram, our father of faith, is rebuked and humiliated by a pagan king, a colossal failure. Can you imagine what that ride home was like? I mean, it would have been a mixture of, of grief, of, of horror of what could have happened, of, of tension between husband and wife, but also of, of gratefulness, of thankfulness to God. See, this is the fifth, the final thing we see about faith is that faith is always wrapped in grace. This is the grace of God that he intervened. It is the continual grace of God. Abraham didn't deserve to be called out of darkness in Ur, and yet he was. And here, he had made a mess of everything. He had put themselves in a place where they would never be able to leave Egypt. Sarah, he, how was he going to make you know, the people of God that God had promised with, without her? She was separated from him, and yet God came in, even in the worst failure that he had made thus far, and he was kind. He brought help and rescue. This is typical of people of faith, that God continually showers us with grace. And we, thousands of years later, are still experiencing the same grace that God showed Abram. In fact, there's a direct connection between the blessings that God intended to show Abram and us through the cross of Jesus. There's a beautiful verse in Galatians that makes this clear. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's a reference to the cross. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
See, the promise of God is that the all of humanity would be blessed in Abram. And now that is fulfilled by all who are in Christ. Why? Because all of our failures have been put on Christ who was hung on the tree for us. That in, in that act of substitution, that we experience the blessing and forgiveness of God. And so now as we go forward in faith, like Abraham, when we fail, when we make a mess of everything in our lives, we can continually come back and know that God will forgive us. Why? Because he's already demonstrated it. He's already shown us the extent to which he loves us. And so for, for Abraham, leaving that in shame, there was still, there was a kernel of, of love. He knew that God cared for him. He knew that God was with him and that he was going to intervene when trouble happened. And the same is true for us. That wherever you are today, I mean, it, it may be a season in your life like the early stages of Abram's journey where, where you're just meeting the challenges of faith with obedience and God is with you and praise God for that but it may be like the season in Egypt where you didn't realize it, but you've really been relying on your own wisdom. And, and as you look around, you see, you see collateral damage. And it's a time again where you, you need help. You need to come back to God and, and, and repent and ask for help. And the, the beautiful news, the great news is that God's answer is always yes. Yes, I shower you with grace because I love you. You're my people. Here in Genesis, here in Abram's story, we, we really do see our story. And so my hope is that as we go forward, as we go from this place, that as we contemplate our own faith, we see that there is a call to obedience. There is a call to hopefulness, but there is also the sustaining grace of God. And that in that, we can have confidence for the road ahead. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that even in our worst days, Lord, you are with us. Even in times when we turn our back on you and we forget you as Abram did, Lord, you remember us. I pray, God, that for each person here, uh, Lord, if they know you, God, that they would turn back to you in every area of their lives, Lord. And if there are those here who don't know you, God, I pray that, that they would hear your voice in the midst of this word, in the midst of this passage. And God, that we would all experience your grace anew today. Thank you. Thank you, God, for the story of Abram. Thank you for his faithfulness and that in it we can see who you are and your gracious character towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.